Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 1. Generally speaking, my intention for every episode of Into the Word is to read and explain one full chapter of the Bible in 15 minutes or less. On days like today, when we're starting something new, we'll give ourselves a few extra minutes to cover some basic introduction and orientation. It is sometimes said that we read the Bible to learn about God, to learn about us, and to learn about how God has saved us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if that's true, and I think it is, then there is a sense in which it can be dangerous and unhelpful to begin reading the Bible where most of us begin reading the Bible. Most of us are very eager to get to the Jesus parts. We want to read the Gospels. We want to get to the heart of the matter. But that can be counterproductive because if you don't know who God is, and if you don't know who you are, then you might not be able to make sense of the life and work of Jesus Christ. The Gospel is a big story. And it begins at the very beginning. It begins with the book of Genesis. The word Genesis means beginning, and it begins where any coherent story must begin. It begins by explaining why there is something rather than nothing. Every coherent worldview, every story that would seek to make sense of humanity as a whole has to answer this question. Why is there something rather than nothing? And the Bible does that in its very first verse. The Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's why there is something rather than nothing. Because God created everything. Philosophers generally agree that in order for there to be anything, there has to have been something that has existed forever and that has the power of life within itself. There are only two logical options. Either the universe has existed forever and has the power of life within itself, or God has existed forever and has the power of life within himself. The Bible tells us which is true. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the beginning of everything. He is the reason that there is something rather than nothing. You can't tell this story. You can't understand the gospel unless you start here. You have to start at the beginning. You have to start with the book of Genesis. Now, the book itself is laid out in two major sections. The first section runs from chapter 1 through to chapter 11, and it tells the story of God and the world. The second section runs from chapter 12 through to chapter 50, and it tells the story of God and the family of Abraham. In the first section, we see God creating everything. He creates the cosmos, and then he, he turns our dark, watery world into a garden that generously and abundantly provides for human life. God creates two human beings, a male and a female, and they're real people, real individuals named Adam and Eve. And yet they also stand for humanity in general. Adam's name means human, and Eve's name means life. God makes these people, and he places them in a very good world, but he provides them with a free moral option. The moral option is called 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Basically, the man and the woman can allow God to define good and evil, or they can rebel against God and define good and evil for themselves. And that is what they choose to do. And that becomes, in essence, the definition of sin. Sin is not taking God at his word. Sin is not trusting God to define what is good, beautiful, and true. And as we see in the story, people are really bad at deciding right and wrong. And the more they do it, the more they ruin the world. And the more they poison their relationship with God and with one another. Chapters 3 to 11 detail the downward spiral of human beings after the fall, such that at the end of chapter 11, we wonder whether there is any hope for them at all. And chapters 12 to 50 seek to answer that question. In chapter 12, God promises that he will bless a man named Abraham. He will bless his family and through his family bring blessing to all the families and nations of the world. God will use the family of Abraham to bring human beings home. Now, of course, we don't get the whole story of how that will happen in the book of Genesis. Remember, the book of Genesis is about the beginning, but we do learn a lot about how this particular rescue operation will work. It won't be because the family of Abraham is better or more righteous or more honest than other people. In fact, at times, it seems like God has chosen the least honest and the least righteous family on planet Earth through which to work his purpose. They keep choosing evil things, and God keeps turning those evil things back in the direction of blessing, back in the direction of grace, back in the direction of home. Now, what we know for sure at the end of this book is that God hasn't given up on human beings. He has made a promise. He has a plan. And he is stronger than all our sin and stupid. He will bless us. He will fix us. And thanks be to God, he will bring us home. Let's begin reading the book of Genesis now at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, we should probably note here that many people see a significant gap between verse 1 and verse 2, meaning that they think that verse 1 refers to one act of creation, and then verse 2 refers to another act of creation, which may have taken place billions of years later. Many old earth creationists would believe in such a gap. They would say that perhaps God created the universe roughly 14 billion years ago. That's verse 1. And then maybe 400 million years ago or so, he began preparing our watery planet for human life. That's verse 2. Now, I think it's possible for such a view to be accommodated by the words of the text, but I don't think such a view arises naturally from the words of the text. There is no mention of such a gap, so at best it is an argument from silence, and such arguments usually make me very nervous. At the end of the day, the reader of the Bible needs to make a decision, and he might as well make it now. Do you believe in a God who intervenes in the natural realm and in human affairs, or do you not? Because if you do believe in such a God, then you really shouldn't be concerned if his various interventions fail to accord with what we know about the laws of nature. 
That is kind of the definition of a divine intervention. It is an act of God that transcends normal physical laws, and it is therefore beyond the scope and insight of the natural sciences. Now, by way of analogy, if, if, if you were to take a cup of the wine that Jesus made at the wedding in Cana, and you were to subject it to all manner of scientific testing, how old would that wine appear? If, if you did it on the day that Jesus made it, how old would it appear? It, it would appear to be at least a couple of years old, wouldn't it? And yet it would only be a few hours old because it wasn't made in the natural way. Or likewise, if you were to run into Adam on his third day of life on planet Earth, and you were to take a swab of his mouth, and you were to measure his height and weight, and you were to apply everything you know about human growth and development, you would inevitably conclude that Adam was approximately 26 years old. And yet he was just three days old. Again, your observations and conclusions would be irrelevant because Adam was not made in the natural way. So at the end of the day, you just have to decide. Do you believe in a God who regularly and miraculously intervenes in cosmic affairs? Because that is the God we meet in the Bible. Our God is a God who does not mind his own business. He interferes. And his interventions are not subject to our scrutiny, analysis, or approval. He is God, and he does what he will. And thanks be to God, here in Genesis, he wills to create. And so he does. The story continues in verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, we should also point out that many fine Christians disagree with one another on the nature of these six creation days. It is true that the word yom is used throughout the Bible to refer to many types of day. That can't be disputed. It refers to days that last 24 hours more often than not. But it also refers to days that last several years and days that have not yet come to an end. The day of the Lord can be used in the Bible to refer to periods of judgment and distress that last for weeks, months, or even years. And many scholars believe that the seventh day referred to in the creation account in some sense has never ended. So it's beyond dispute that Yom can refer to various sorts of days. And so we mustn't write people off because they see this account as referring to six periods of creation of indeterminate lengths of time, possibly separated by great periods of silence and inactivity. You can make that argument without abusing the words of the text. But again, it should be stated that such a view does not arise naturally from the text. And again, if we believe in a God who exists and who works miracles, then why not believe in such a God on page one of the Bible? Why not let the text mean what it seems to say? Why not accept that God created the world whole and therefore, as with Adam, having an appearance of age? The most natural reading of the text suggests that we are watching God do a miracle that will forever defy human observation, analysis, and understanding. 
It appears to happen in an orderly fashion over the course of six literal days. Given the limits of human powers of observation and given the deceitfulness of the human heart, I am more than prepared to take this text at face value. Here I stand, and I can do no other. Let's continue reading at verse 6. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light, to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. Now, if you hold to the idea that there is a significant gap between verse 1 and verse 2, then you have a hard time dealing with the creation of the sun, moon, and stars on day four. Generally speaking, those who hold to such a gap believe that God created the universe in verse one and then prepared the earth for human habitation over the six days described in verses two to 31. But here, right in the middle of that, we have God creating sun, moon, and stars. Now, some try to get around that difficulty by saying that what is being described here is what Moses saw from his perspective, on the earth. And that what really happened is that God thinned the atmosphere and cleared away the clouds so that Moses could see what was already there. And that is possible. We do have to remember that what we are reading here is how Moses described what God showed him in some sort of revelatory vision. That's important to remember. But we are still left with the fact that that isn't what Moses said. He didn't say that on the fourth day, God revealed the sun, moon, and stars. He said God made them. And so again, I I think that we are wiser to take the text as it reads. The fact that we then have to explain where light was coming from before the creation of the sun ought to be no great challenge to us. God's face is all the light we need in the new creation in Revelation 22. And I imagine that it would have been just as sufficient for the first creation 
in Genesis chapter 1. We jump back into the text at verse 20. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now just quickly notice here that everything in this story reproduces according to its kind. And this accords nicely with what we know about DNA. Every creature, every single cell, contains information that allows it to repair and reproduce itself according to its kind. It does not contain information on how to turn itself into another species. The Bible does not teach evolution. The Bible teaches what the study of DNA seems to teach, which is that creatures reproduce according to their kinds. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Let's notice here that both the man and the woman are created in the image of God. They are co-equal in worth and dignity, and they are both ruling creatures. The Hebrew word for image is tselem, and means both resemblance and representative. The Hebrew word for likeness is demuth, and means shape, likeness, manner, or similitude. So, when the Hebrews first heard this, they heard this as meaning that in some way, every man and woman, and remember, these are recently liberated slaves, they heard this as saying that every man and woman were like God and represented God over creation. They were kings and queens. Now, we could spend all day talking about the various ways that the man and the woman are like God. We could talk about co-equality of persons. We we could talk about their unity. We we could talk about their complementary partnership. We could talk about a great many things, but we haven't the time. It will have to be sufficient for us to say that men and women are glorious and exalted creatures. They are the pinnacle of God's creation. They are uniquely like God. And they were created to be under God and over everything else. Verse 28 says, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, notice here that part of how men and women rule over the earth is by having babies. Parenting is an act of dominion. We rule over the earth in part by filling the earth with little men and women who know and worship God. That was part of the original created order, and like everything else, it was, and it is, very good. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And hope to see you again tomorrow, right here for another episode of Into the Word. Before.